Welcome to Force Multiplier, a new podcast about leveling up the impact we can have on the world through our relationships. I'm Baritone Day Thurston, and in collaboration with iHeartRadio and Salesforce.org, I sit with leaders from across the public, private, and nonprofit world who are forging partnerships to tackle some of the toughest challenges facing us today. Welcome back to Force Multiplier. Today's theme is mental health. To say I'm excited to talk about this topic wouldn't be accurate, but I do need to talk about this topic, and I'm very willing. I'm someone who has loved sharing when things are going well. I'm a performer, always putting my best foot and face forward. When things are hard, I suck it up. I walk it off. I use other metaphors for burying those uncomfortable feelings. At least I used to do that by default. Now that I've been in my 40s for a few years, I'm taking a more integrated approach to my health that incorporates the physical, spiritual, and mental. I've benefited from a beautiful relationship with a psychologist who helped me process the pain of my divorce years ago. I've embraced breath work, meditation, coaching, all these things to become more attuned to my inner self and make space for processing those uncomfortable feelings. It's not always fun. I can't pretend that it is, but it does make me healthier. I'm learning that investing in my mental health is essential. I'm also learning just how serious the effects of poor mental health can be on all of us. One in seven adolescents aged 10 to 19 is estimated to have a mental health condition. And among adolescents, suicide is the fifth most prevalent cause of death. As students go back to school, 76% of them identify well-being as a top challenge. Overall, less than half of all Americans with a mental disorder get the treatment that they need. The root causes of these mental health challenges are often trauma and neglect we experience at a young age. When we're loved at home, we go to school to learn. When we aren't loved at home, we go to school to be loved. And if we don't have a deep connection with a parent or caregiver, we feel a sense of threat, which impacts our emotional and cognitive development just at the moment when we're most vulnerable. If we take a look at the Black community, all these indicators, they're just worse. In 2019, suicide was the second leading cause of death for Black youth aged 15 to 24. And Black Americans generally are 20% more likely to experience serious mental health problems than the general population. Some of these root causes run deeper than our individual childhoods, and they span generations of neglect and abuse based in a society and an economic system designed precisely to neglect and abuse us. I've known and experienced pieces of these facts my entire life. I've lost people to suicide. I've lived in communities ravaged by neglect and abuse places where we distance ourselves from those who are hurting, maybe because we fear it will highlight our own pain. I'm still learning that the way to a healthier society requires investment and participation by all members of society. Parents, educators, peers, policymakers, employers, everybody. All of us must come together to support all of us so we can all be healthier and whole. This brings me to our guest, Charlemagne the God, co-host of the nationally syndicated show The Breakfast Club, New York Times best-selling author, 
and certainly one of the most influential voices in modern culture. Known for his outspoken and brutally honest rhetoric, Charlemagne is using his platform to amplify awareness around mental health in the Black community. Later in the episode, we hear from Benjamin Perks, head of campaigns and advocacy in the Division of Global Communications at the United Nations Children's Fund. In his role, Ben leads public and policy advocacy on issues related to the survival, development, and protection of children. Two incredibly insightful conversations, leaving us with a lot to think about. Let's dive in. Charlemagne. How are you, brother? I'm really good. I'm really good. It's nice to be chatting with you right now. Listen, you're you're so well known for The Breakfast Club. 10 years. Congratulations on that. In December, it'll be 11. Yeah. What does radio mean to you beyond a job, beyond a source of income? Oh, man. I mean, it's what changed my life. It's what gave me a a sense of purpose. You know, prior to this, I was, you know, running the streets in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, doing a whole bunch of things I didn't have no business doing. Like, I didn't I didn't know what my future was going to be. My dad was telling me that if I didn't change my ways, you know, I was going to end up in jail, dead or broke sitting under the tree. And, you know, when I started seeing people around me actually dying, when I started, you know, seeing people around me going to prison, when I started going to jail myself, I realized he was right. And, you know, that that fear of literally being just some dude sitting under the tree with nothing to show for it but a can of beer every day. I didn't want that for myself. And, and you know, I pride myself on always being able to see, you know, what life is going to look like 10 years from now. Anything you do today directly impacts what happens in your life tomorrow. So I just started making the necessary adjustments. And so for me, radio just gave me a sense of purpose and it gave me a sense of uh, of worth that I didn't have before. I can feel the energy of that purpose and that worth shining through. It's still very much present. You, you've evolved, you know, from radio host to author to activist. And from the outside, a lot of people can see that trajectory and say, what a smooth ride this brother's been on. What have been some of the hardest parts of building your career in this way? Oh, man, it's nothing been smooth. I mean, I've been fired, you know, four times. You have so many ebbs and flows in this business, not really professionally, but personally. There was a lot of things that I hadn't dealt with, you know, as far as unresolved trauma. And like, you know, I've been dealing with anxiety and panic attacks my whole life. And in 2010 was the first time a doctor said, yo, you suffer from anxiety. And at the time, I had been fired four times from radio. I'm like 32 years old. I'm back living at home with my mom. My first daughter is now like one or two. My now wife is back home living with her mom. We had to pack up from Jersey and come back home. And like when I had that really bad panic attack, I thought I was going to die. And the doctor was like, no, that sounds like you had an anxiety attack. He was like, are you stressed out about anything? And I'm like, hell yeah. So in my mind, all I got to do is get another job, get back in position That next radio gig ended up being The Breakfast Club. Fast forward three, four years, I'm having more success than I've ever had in my life. I'm just really growing and evolving, but I'm losing myself in the process because I started to become a caricature of myself because I I was doing anything to survive. I was really, like, pushing the limits on that whole shock jock thing. You know what I'm saying? And and it was because I was getting rewarded for it. It was because I was getting write-ups in 
the New York Times and all these different magazines, and they're like, oh, Charlemagne the God is the hip-hop Howard Stern, and yada, yada, yada. So I'm like, oh, this is what they want? I'm going to give them more of that. And I, I, I probably was being real and honest, but I was being real and honest from a really bad place in space because, you know, I, was, I hadn't done the work on myself. You started getting more real with yourself and sharing that in your book, Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me. And one of the things you did in this book is, you know, I saw you describing it at one point as you'd gone to therapy for a while. You started looking at your notes and you decided to write from those notes. As someone who's been in therapy myself, but came to it late in life, because another black dude, friend of mine, was like, you should talk to this person. The idea that we don't have permission to, that this is something black folk don't do, along with swimming and eating mayonnaise, that, that <laughs> therapy's not for us. Uh, and that there's a stigma associated with it for all kinds of people, especially black people, but people in general, that you're weak, that you don't have it, that you can't cut it, that you can't hack it. And in a hyper-competitive industry like the one you're in, I guess that's a long way of saying, did you realize what you were doing to destigmatize conversations about mental health, to normalize conversations about mental health? Absolutely not. I was just literally sharing my experiences. That's why I tell people all the time, I'm not an expert. You know what I mean? I'm just a brother who was sharing his experiences. But to your point, yeah, when people started coming up to me in the street telling me they started going to therapy because of me, when women were coming up to me saying, my husband started going because of you or my brother or my uncle. I remember Tracy and uh, Taraji P. Henson, they got the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. One of the only other people out there speaking openly about mental health. So me and her used to do a lot of things together. And um, I remember... Somebody introduced me as a mental health advocate. And I'm like, nah, I'm not no mental health advocate. And Tracy was like, brother, whether you want to be or not, you are. And she said, you need to embrace it. You know, clearly God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call. And there's a lot of different things that have happened over the past few years, you know, along my journey of healing that just makes me want to dedicate my life to helping black people heal. It's my life's work. And so it's just like, man, I be talking to some of these brothers now, and it's weird, right? Because I'm still on my journey of healing, but healed people hear and see things differently. So it's things I hear in brothers and see in brothers, and I'm like, I don't judge them like I used to. I don't, I'm not ready to critique them like I used to and attack them like I used to because I know that brother's just dealing with unresolved trauma. I know that brother's dealing with pain. I know that brother's dealing with hurt. So I got a lot more empathy, you know, when it comes to us as people because of the work I've done on myself. The the saying, hurt people, hurt people, you kind of balance that there with, you know, healing people in the process of healing are at least better able to be a part of someone else's process of healing. That's right. And the snap judgment and the willingness to attack it's a big opening to be able to see that that comes, you know, that that pain in someone else maybe not be personal, maybe historic, right. maybe intergenerational, maybe built on some trauma from earlier in their life. We both love black people and I can feel that love and I see it in a lot of your work. And there are times when the size of what we've been through as people overwhelms me, right? I, I look at all the beautiful things we've done but I also look at all the ugly things we survived. And I'm just amazed we're even here at all. Absolutely. How do you think about the unique power of Black people 
achieving a state of mental health. What, did, what would that mean for us? And what, why is it such an important mission to you? I recently heard Will Smith say, paraphrasing, basically, it doesn't matter who broke it. It's, it's up to you to fix it. My talk show, The God's Honest Truth, on Comedy Central, World Mental Health Day is 1010. I'm doing a mental health episode this week, and, I, and I'm talking about healing as a black person. And the question I'm asking is, whose responsibility is it for you to heal? Yeah. And the answer is you. <laughs> Nobody else. Nobody else. So, yes, I feel like, man, there's so many things that we can't control. There's so many things that we're all fighting to change, you know, as far as systemic racism in, in this country. But as far as us and dealing with our traumas, it don't matter who broke us. It's up to us to fix us. And I really, truly feel like, man, when we become a generation of people who really go out there and seek healing, I think we'll see such a change in our communities. Because I think there's so many different things that can be directly attributed to unresolved trauma. You've created this beautifully titled Mental Wealth Alliance with a mission to teach and train and treat, in part because you experienced this gap in resources uh, and you witnessed it in the Black community. Share with our audience a bit more about the, the gap you witnessed and how you've designed programs with the Alliance to address it. Yeah, well, you know, um, teach, train, treat are our three pillars. And I just was looking at a lot of people who are already out there doing the work, you know, like an organization out of Philly called Black Men Hill. And, you know, I donated some money to Black Men Hill back in the day. And what I, when, I, when I saw what they were able to do, you know, with the $10,000 donation I made, I was like, wow, they were able to provide free therapy for all of these different black men. And I was like, man. How can we do this on a mass level? Because I'm able to raise more money than a, you know, Black Men Hill can. So why not create a hub to where we get the funding and distribute the funding to the people that need it? And, you know, that's that's our mission statement. We want to provide, you know, free therapy. And, you know, when you look at the, the amount of, of mental health care workers and clinical workers, I think we only make up like 3 to 4%. So it's like I want to at least get that to where it reflects the population of black people in America. And the way we do that is through scholarships and through paying for training for individuals. So I'm just trying to use my platform and use my voice to, to do the right things. You know I mean? I see, I see who needs the funding. I see where the funding is going. So if I'm able to raise more capital and get it to those people, why not? You have this, uh, a beautiful array of founding partners with the mental wealth Alliance. What did it require in terms of partnerships to get this group off the ground? Man, it was an idea, actually, that my man, um, Tim Shriver, actually hit me. And Tim Shriver was like, man, you should really think about opening up your own foundation. And I was like, why? I was, you know, I'd rather be out here supporting, you know, the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation, or, you know, Project uh, 375, you know, that Brandon Marshall's foundation. And he was like, it gives you a different sense of purpose, you know, and, you know, people may want to support what you're doing faster than, you know, some of those those other organizations. And I'm like, you know, why not? Everybody that's involved are just people that I've met over the past four or five years in my journey. 
of healing. You know, people like my, my homegirl, Debbie Brown, Debbie Brown, me and Debbie been cool for damn near 17 years. So, you know, I've watched Debbie evolve to become this powerhouse in the mindfulness space, you know, working with Deepak Chopra and everything else. So it was sisters like that who helped me go out there and, and find a sense of healing and find a sense of purpose. So now that we're all in these great positions, why wouldn't I want somebody like Debbie Brown involved on the board? Yeah. Can you talk one more moment about this pillar of train? Uh, the treatment is the most obvious. People need help and you're helping facilitate and provide places where they can get that help. But what's the training about and why is that such a central pillar in your mission? We need people who are culturally competent. We need, you know, black people to be these these mental health professionals. You know, we need we need culturally sensitive mental health services, period. If we can encourage people to go into that space, to go into that field, people that look like us, that talk like us, that sound like us, that come from the same backgrounds as us, that's what we need. There's a place in Farmington, Michigan called Inception, and it's ran by my man David McCullough. David McCullough's a brother, you know, from that area. When people go there and they go to Inception and they do brain training or they do float therapy or they do magnosphere, it immediately opens you up and makes you want to talk. And David is a brother that they can talk to. He's a brother. You know what I mean? He right. listens to the same music we listen to. Yeah. He, he talks like us, but he's just really educated when it comes to the mental health space. That's what makes you want to open up even more because David understands things that somebody who's not from the environments we come from wouldn't understand. When you got somebody who's from the hood and understands that, yo, black people, we're not inherently evil. We're not trying to just be out here doing criminal stuff because that's who we are. Like, it's a set of socioeconomic conditions that cause some of us to move a certain way. Yeah. Sometimes that that can only come from somebody who's culturally competent. Yeah, and you don't have to spend so much time explaining yourself, your people, your history to somebody Absolutely. who's there, theoretically, to help you understand yourself Absolutely. More. On October 10th, you've got a, an expo coming up that's a mental wealth expo. I've heard of a wealth expo and how you can get rich and do all these wonderful things with your finances. I've never heard of a mental wealth expo. What can people expect from this? Who's involved? How is it different from the other types of expos that a lot of us are familiar with? It's not different from other expos. You know what I mean? It's a day of mental health education and a day of healing. Like You always hear people say things like, you know, where do I start? Where do I start? You know, when it comes to like going on a healing journey. So for me, this is just like an entry point, you know? So what I've done is I've put together, man, we got so many different panels, man. We got a panel on black men's mental health, black women's mental health. We got a spiritual intelligence panel. You know, we got all these different breakout rooms that are specifically for things like anxiety, PTSD, depression. We got rooms for people who are, you know, dealing with, with family members who are bipolar and schizophrenic, because nobody ever talks about those individuals and what and what having somebody in your family with those kind of mental health issues does to your mental health. And so I got, man, people that I just respect, like like Debbie Brown. She'll be doing her Dropping Gems podcast there live. Michelle Williams, you know, she has a great podcast called Checking In, where she really just checks in with people to see how their mental health and emotional well-being is going. She's there. My man, Jay Barnett. Mr. Jason Wilson is going to be there. David McCullough, Dr. Rita Walker. I got Resma Minikim. I got him and Angela Rye will be in conversation with each other. 
And so, man, it's just a day for us to love on each other from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And it's free and open to the public. You know what I mean? That was very important to me to make sure that it was free and open to the public. Because to your point, I don't knock nobody for what they do. I just think that some of this information, if we're really trying to help people, if we're really trying to empower people, I can't charge for it. You know what I mean? I just, I just simply can't do that. I don't knock nobody for what they do. You know, everybody's got an area of expertise. Get your money. Do your thing. Me personally, I'd rather stick up some of these corporate people and get these sponsorships <laughs> and let them pay for everything. You know what I mean? All of these companies that say they yeah. want to invest in black people and they want to empower black people and they want to help black people. Okay, well, help us unpack some of our traumas then, you know, and sponsor this event. Yeah, that's what we're doing this Sunday, and I can't wait. That's the Jesse Jackson method right there, the corporate sticker. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth, though. And, you know, like we're going to have – it's going to be different booths there. You know, people are going to be able to come there and get so much different information, man. And all I'm hoping is that people leave there with the wherewithal on how to start their healing journey. They at least know where to begin. They know if they need to talk to a psychiatrist, a therapist, a grief counselor, whatever it is, they know what to do on their healing journey. You might get into meditation. You might get into yoga because we got all of that there, you know? So you might get into crystals. We got a lot of different things. You basically just described my mother. May she rest in peace. All that <laughs> yoga, meditation, and crystals. Those are three wow. strong memories I have of her during my childhood. I, I wish I could actually be there. Um, but I will definitely tell everybody about it. And certainly this, this show is going to help tell everybody about it. We, we call this show Force Multiplier because we think that there are some things you can do that have an outsized effect, an outsized impact, give you a bit of leverage. What would you say the Force Multiplier is in closing the mental health gap in the Black community? Some of those few things we could do that have an outsized impact. That's a great, great question, man. I think, honestly, just continuing to have the conversation because when I put out my my second book, Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me, I didn't know it was going to start so many different conversations. But one of the conversations that it really sparked for me, which gave me a whole new understanding of the person, was the conversation that started with me and my father. You know, one thing I realized about therapy was going to therapy was like my father was a source to a lot of my trauma. You know, my father was a a source to a lot of my insecurities, my lack of self-worth. He was a good father, but he was more so disciplinary. And the reason I ended up having a lot more grace with him, because I used to go to therapy and be in tears, like, yo, this, he used to punish me because I didn't know things he didn't teach me. You know, I always tell this one story in particular. I remember I was 15, 16 years old. I think it was 60 because I had my license. Then. So I'm driving behind him. He told me to follow him. He runs the stop sign. So I run the stop sign. He pulls over. I pull over. He gets out the car. I roll the window down. He smacks the shit out of me. And he's like, wake up. Pay attention. And I'm like, I'm following you. He's like, you didn't see that stop sign? I'm like, did you see the stop sign? <laughs> <laughs> I'm following you. I'm 16 years old. I just got my license. Uh, but that's how it constantly was. Yeah. I would always get disciplined. Do as I say, not as I do. Oh, I hated that. Oh, I hated that <laughs> line. I hated that line. But yes, I ended up having a, um, 
better understanding of him because he read my book. And when he read Shook One, I also had a cousin. He was 25. He had tried to kill himself four different times. November 2018, it was the week of Thanksgiving. He finally completed suicide. And between that and my dad reading my book, my dad said, man, you know, I've been reading your book. And, you know, he was like, you know, you know what just happened to your cousin? He was like, man, he said, I went to therapy two and three times a week, you know, back in the day. And, you know, I've been on 10 to 12 different medications throughout my life. And I tried to kill myself 30 years ago. The only reason I didn't kill myself is because of you and your sister. And so when he said that, I just realized, like, yo, Pops was just doing the best he could with, 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 with the resources he had at the time. And I think we take that for granted. We don't realize, man, we're probably the first generation of black people who have the luxury of healing. The generation before us, our parents, they were scratching and surviving, like good times. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like, like they were just trying to make it. You know, they were too busy working, keeping a roof over our head to have to deal with their mental and emotional issues. And then I remember even having conversations with my mom. I used to think my mom was so cool because she would be in her room listening to Lauryn Hill X Factor over and over. I used to be like, damn, mama's, mama's hip. You know what I mean? <laughs> Come to find out, that's when my mom and dad were going through a divorce. Mm. And she was sad. And she was going to therapy at the time. None of them told me that. till I was a late 30s, almost 40-year-old yeah. person. So imagine if they would have told me all of that much, much earlier. I would have understood where my anxiety stems from. I would have understood where my PTSD, you know, stemmed from. I would have understood where my depression stemmed from. If I had the language for what they were going through, if I even knew they was going through these things back in the day, when these things started impacting me, I would have known how to deal with them a lot better. So, you know, to answer your question, we just got to continue to have yeah. these conversations, man, because these conversations spark more conversations and we can finally get to the root of why we are the way we are. There's so many uh, of us and of all people who think of freedom in terms of external factors, physical freedom, uh, maybe financial freedom, but the freedom to kind of be at peace and the freedom to, to look at your internal self and really know yourself is a real high level of freedom. And I like the way you talk about our generation's opportunity you know, versus the ones that came before. We have, you called it luxury. I think of it as freedom in a different way, but very similar. So thanks for opening up and sharing that. We are, uh, we're coming up on time, but I want to get a few more things in. One is, what advice would you share with somebody listening to this who wants to get involved, wants to help support around mental health, Black mental wealth in their own local community? Where would you point them? How can they get started? I would, you know, go to the mentalwealthalliance.com because we definitely have a directory up there of, you know, different people, different organizations in different locations that you could, you know, be a part of. Do your Googles, man. Go Google local mental health organizations, wherever you from. You know what I mean? I'm talking about in your town. Put your town name in and Google mental, you know, health organizations. And, and I can't think of too many cities who don't have, you know, a black mental health organization. They may not be getting the funding they need. They may not be getting the attention they need, but they exist. So, you know, reach out to these people, man, and, and, you know, find out how you can help them continue to grow and, you know, just shine a spotlight on them, whether it's just with a tweet, whether it's with an Instagram post, whatever it is, 
you know? So I would just tell people, man, do your Googles. I guarantee you there's an organization in your city that is helping black people be more mentally healthy. But you just got to search them out. When I was a kid, they say, uh, go to the library. Today, Charlemagne says, do your Googles. Do your Googles. Do your Google. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for somebody who is, uh, who's working in the corporate world, maybe, maybe they run the company. Probably they don't. Most people in the corporate world don't own the company. But what can they do to lend their support or the support of their companies? They need to let their companies know the importance of investing in their employees' mental health. You know, if you want the best out of somebody, man, you got to make sure that that person is there mentally, that that person is there emotionally, that that person is there spiritually. Spiritually really may not be what corporations are there for, but mentally and emotionally, man, you got to create these environments to where the people who work for these corporations can thrive, you know? And I think that it's a, I think everybody should be pushing for mental health days, work-life balance days. You can't just be working people to death. Like, you can't just have a person on a job 40 hours a week, however many weeks a year, and you're not giving them no breaks. Yo, check in with your employees. That goes a long way, too. Just reaching out to one of your employees and saying, yo, how are you? When I ask people, how are you nowadays, I really, truly mean it because I want to know. And sometimes you being an employee, hearing that from your employer, a simple how are you, that puts the battery in your back, makes you feel good about working for said company, you know, makes you feel like this company is seeing you outside of something other than being just a number that will can get called to be fired. I just think, man, it goes back to what I said earlier about, yo, just really doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. We hear so much about toxic work environments. A lot of these work environments are toxic because these corporations don't look at these people as anything but workers. They're humans. They have the same feelings you have. They have the same emotions you have. They probably have the same breaking points that you have. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, make sure you're not scratching people too thin. Make sure that when you are scratching them, you're scratching them because it's an opportunity for them to grow. And and staying in touch with their own humanity in the process, too. I think a lot of That's us right. are able to, to dehumanize others because we've, in some way, detached ourselves from our own humanity. That's right. Is there anything else you wanted to add, given everything we've been talking about? Man, I just want people to come out to the Mental Wealth Expo uh, this Sunday, 10-10, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Marriott Marquis, Times Square in New York City. It's free and open to the public, and it's a day of healing and um, education. And I really want people to tune into my my late-night show, The God's Honest Truth, every Friday night at 10 p.m. on Comedy Central. You know, I'm really getting an opportunity to talk about a lot of things that, you know, matter to me. You know, first episode, we talked about the decrackification of America and how the denazification in Germany, that model could really be applied here in a real way in regards to white supremacy and racism and bigotry. And, you know, second episode, we talked about J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and, you know, asking the questions like, how can we ever expect these institutions that were founded before black people had civil rights and women had civil rights? How could these institutions ever show up for us? And the last episode, we discussed critical race theory, which I called critical racist theory, because we know this is just the latest example of them trying to keep black people dumb, deaf and blind. Because Nat Turner, a brother like Nat Turner, showed America the power of an educated Negro. And from that point on, that's when they, especially in the South, they got rid of slaves being able to read and slaves being able to write. So, like, don't think that 
you know, this whole keep critical race theory out of schools and keep the 1619 project out of schools, that's systemic and it's been systemic for a long time. And, you know, this this week we're talking about mental health and more so about healing. Yeah. So yeah. just, you know, just tune in, man. I'm just I'm, I'm really getting an opportunity to talk about things that I really care about. So, like I say, the evolution will be televised. <laughs> evolution of Charlemagne, yeah. Leonard McKelvey will be televised. Well, Charlemagne, uh, thank you for your care, your love, the use of your power and energy toward healing, not just for yourself, but for all of us. It's been such a pleasure getting this time with you, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Baron Tunde. Appreciate you, King. You're listening to a podcast called Force Multiplier Action Meets Impact. Now, you've probably grown to expect ads inside your podcast, but we're going to do something a little bit different. To walk the walk, we're going to take a quick break and hear from one of the organizations featured in this episode. Be right back. 15 months and counting into the COVID-19 pandemic, the world faces a difficult reality, an unprecedented education crisis. More than half of all students worldwide have been affected by school closures, putting their learning and development at risk, denying them contact with their peers and trained caring teachers, making them miss out on essential health care, nutrition and protection services, and affecting their mental health and well-being. A recent UNICEF survey across 77 countries found that children and adolescents are reporting dramatic increases in stress, anxiety, irritability, and substance abuse. The longer children are out of school, the worse the mental health impacts. Impacts that make them vulnerable to abuse and exploitation. Impacts that can last a lifetime, especially for those children who are already disadvantaged by poverty or children with different abilities. While COVID-19 has closed schools, it has also decimated support services like mental health services and school counseling, leaving millions of children and their families without this critical support when they need it most. As countries prepare to reopen schools, UNICEF believes that this is also a moment to strengthen mental health support across education systems, which is why we have joined the World Bank and UNESCO to launch our joint mission to recover education. UNICEF sees this as a critical moment to reimagine education and mental health systems in the years ahead, to help the world's youngest generation through and beyond what has been a devastating moment for them. As a global community, let us rally around their needs and let us make sure that they return to schools where they can get their learning and the mental health back on track. Hey you, it's Baratune Day, host of the podcast you're listening to right now. When I was a kid, my mom told me to come up with a system we could live under after democracy had failed. Yeah, my mom was intense. I haven't finished that assignment, but I did make a podcast. It's called How to Citizen with Baratunde. It reimagines citizen as a verb and reminds us how to wield our collective power. Find seasons one and two in whatever podcast app you're using right now. And season three, all about tech, 
drops in October 2021. Learn more at howtocitizen.com. You know, I've worked for most of my working life on what I would call the human rights of children all over the world. And that work has really accompanied my own kind of recovery from a, you know, a tough background, children's homes, poverty, homelessness, the threat of crime as a child. And so for me, I have a real sense of urgency about this. You know, I truly believe that if we could invest in strengthening parenting, in helping parents who are affected by intergenerational transmission of trauma, if we can disrupt that cycle of transmission, then we can imagine a world where abuse and neglect is a thing of the past. So if we took a simple parenting program, if we invested, say, in every new parent having four or five, maybe six home visits in the first year of life to work on attachment between a parent and a child to teach the basics and to help them with coping uh, skills. If we did that across populations and then we gave boosters at key moments during childhood, a very simple intervention, similar in scope to vaccine coverage through health systems or other systems, I think you would see a huge decline in abuse and neglect, adverse childhood experiences, and you would see a generational decrease in things like addiction, violence, and non-communicable diseases. I think the world is waking up to the fact that abuse and neglect is preventable. So that could be the legacy of our generation is to leave this for future generations, just in, in the same way that people who came before us left things like clean water and vaccines and sanitation and so on. So I think we have a, an opportunity and a responsibility and we can really make a massive difference in the world on this agenda. Now, as head of campaigns and advocacy at the United Nations Children's Fund, Benjamin Perks has seen firsthand how abuse, neglect, and adverse childhood experiences are the primary causes of mental illness. He shares that by strengthening parenting and helping those affected by intergenerational transmission of trauma, we can disrupt that cycle and imagine a world where abuse and neglect is a thing of the past. So abuse and neglect, adverse childhood experiences, are perhaps the principal preventable cause of mental illness and many other connected poor life outcomes, obesity, addiction, criminality, and those type of things. It's really important to ensure that children and young people are able to flourish emotionally and mentally. We know that when children are born, they're biologically programmed to seek a deep connection with a parent or a caregiver. And when that is absent, the child sees it as a threat. And that has a direct impact on their emotional development, their cognitive development at the moment when they're most vulnerable. I think over the past two to three decades, we've had this proliferation of evidence and research at the intersection of psychology, neuroscience, sociology, biology, pedagogy. And it tells us a couple of really important things. Firstly, it tells us that the prevalence of abuse and neglect and dysfunctional parenting is much more prevalent than we ever thought it was before. Across countries, between five and six out of 10 
of any given population have had at least one form of adverse childhood experience. And between 10 and 20% have had four or more. And when we look at adults that have had four or more adverse childhood experiences, we see that they do much worse throughout the course of life in terms of mental and physical health, in terms of learning and job outcomes, and also in terms of things like non-communicable diseases, obesity, addiction, those kind of issues. Uh, So when researchers saw this, they realized it was a major uh, social problem that was much bigger than we ever thought it was before. So they then began to work with neuroscientists and others to try and determine what explains this link between adverse childhood experiences and poor life outcomes. And they came up with the concept of toxic stress. We all have stress, right? Before an interview, you can have stress. When you lose your wallet, on the way to work, you can have stress. It's something that affects all of us. You know what happens to your body. You become tense. Adrenaline pumps through your body. And then when you find the wallet, your body calms down again. What happens with toxic stress is there's not the conditions in place to allow that calming down of the body. The threat is not something you can hide from or move away from because the threat is at home. And for children, it's not just a threat to have the presence of violence, it's also a threat to have the absence of love. So children who are neglected have an activation, a chronic activation of the stress response system. And this derails almost every single aspect of their fragile and fledgling development, including their cognitive and emotional development, but also their physical development. And I think the point is, this is a theme that is taboo And people don't necessarily talk about, but it's something that's very much experienced by everybody on some level. If people have not had adverse childhood experiences themselves, they love somebody who has, or they live next door to somebody who's still struggling with that. So this is very much a human story. So what we're trying to do with all of this is bring these very complex issues to the level of human understanding and to conversation to make them policy relevant because the good news is that we can actually end adverse childhood experiences. We can end abuse and neglect in the world and reap huge benefits for society. UNICEF has a flagship report that we launch across the 190 country offices that we have around the world in partnership with regional bodies like the EU, World Health Organization, uh, the global level, African Union, and it's the uh, State of the World's Children Report. And this year, for the first time in our history, it's about mental health. One in seven adolescents is estimated to have what we call a mental health condition. That's adolescents between the age of 10 and 19. Suicide is the fifth most prevalent cause of death for adolescents. After road injury, tuberculosis, interpersonal violence, it's one of the leading causes of death for children, for adolescents. And according to some uh, research that we'll be sharing when we launch the State of the World's Children next week, the 90% of 15 to 24-year-olds in 21 countries self-reported often feeling depressed or having little interest in doing things. And we think these are feelings that have been 
amplified by the COVID-19 situation. COVID-19 has certainly deepened inequalities on all aspects of child well-being, including mental health. We know that school, relationship with teachers, access to peer groups is a really important and very simple, straightforward, protective factor for good mental health. We know that has affected children in situations of poverty and exclusion much greater than other sections of society. So we've been calling very passionately for schools to be reopened as soon as possible. And that's for three reasons. The first one is the learning gap is particularly hard to catch up for children in poverty, children affected by adverse childhood experiences, children whether in societies where there are racial, gender or disability or other disparities. Secondly, we know that for children living in poverty, things like school nutrition and other services that come through school are really essential. And thirdly, we know that children that are at risk of violence, neglect, or harmful practices such as early marriage, uh, trafficking, and so on, are much more likely to be at risk when they can't attend school. Child protection services are much less likely to be able to access them. And children who are living with abusive or neglectful parents have been locked up with those parents for quite a while. So the, the mental health and the overall well-being of children now returning to school is crucial. And that needs to be put at the heart of all the planning for that return. But it's also a moment for us to reimagine education. How can education systems end the inequalities that existed before the pandemic, the ones that have been worsened by the pandemic? How can we use this kind of global pause to really reimagine an education system where every child is connected, where every child has means of digital learning and uh, schools in which children can flourish and are not affected by learning poverty. And when they're able to build up the skill sets to be able to have meaningful citizenship and to have a rewarding life of work when they leave. One of the challenges when we talk about mental health is the taboo and the confusion about the issue, the stigma, the shame. And what we said with State of the World's Children and the On My Mind campaign is that we all have mental health. At any given time, we all sit on a spectrum of mental health. And in 2021, it should be okay to talk about it without shame. It's something that we all need to understand much more about. And it's something where we should be able to turn our attention away from judgment and towards solutions. And how do we build our societies and our families and communities in ways that people can have good mental health and flourish? So the idea of On My Mind as a campaign is that we need to be able to talk about what's on our mind. We need to be heard and to hear, to have the language to communicate about it. But we also need to recognize that the single biggest protective factor for any person's mental health is to know that they are held in the mind and in the heart of another person, that their life is cherished, that they are valued, and that they matter as an individual. And if we can ensure that every child on the planet 
has this message and has this understanding of self. And if we can make sure that every society is able to ensure that every child is valued and that every family member is able to talk about mental health, then this is going to be a real game changer in the whole area of wellbeing. I think there's three really important relationships that I'm just going to highlight. The first one is parents. Parents have got to be able to keep the lines of communication open with understanding and empathy as children go through the very complex process of brain transformation that happens in adolescence. And parents need to be able to communicate with kids, but also be supported to have the knowledge about what's going on, what's going on in terms of brain development and what can you do to ensure a child is protected, avoids risk, dangerous risk and flourishes. The second one is teachers and other community leaders, whether they be health workers, police or other people that, that interact with young people. They need to make sure that young people are seen and safe and soothed, but also understood and listened to. So one of the things we're talking about in schools is that, for example, is a teacher needs to look at a class of 14-year-olds and recognize that a good proportion of those kids are going to be coming from difficult backgrounds, difficult home situations, and they are particularly at risk, but you never necessarily know who they are. So you need to provide supportive environment for all the children in the class and to make sure that environment is psychologically safe and that the teacher is emotionally attuned and that it's trauma-informed. So we need to mainstream that in the way that teachers think about teaching, the way that schools think about school policy. And I think that kids don't learn if they don't feel connected to a teacher. The third important relationship is peers because adolescents care much more about peer relationships than anything else. That's a normal part of adolescence. So we need to create healthy environments in which strong peer bonds can flourish, where risk behaviors such as isolating kids from groups and all of that is prevented and minimized. And children to adolescents have a space to grow and flourish safely. When you think about technology, what's really important is the other things in the kid's life. Technology is often a reflection of the other vulnerabilities the child has. That said, we also think that the social media platforms must ensure that safeguarding measures are in place to prevent things like bullying online, peer isolation, which is a form of bullying, all of these things really need to be governed properly by the social media organizations. I think that that's really important. And I think we have to also remember that the proliferation of social media and other technology took place so quickly that society didn't really adapt to keep up with it. And a lot of the vulnerability comes from that. So we need to have a very clear understanding of where responsibility sits. I go to many countries and a big question that people ask is about who's responsible for our children's safety online. And often parents think it's teachers, teachers think it's parents. We need to have stronger collaboration between parents, teachers and others to protect our kids. We work with such a, a wide set of partners 
we work very closely with World Health Organization, who like us are a, a UN body. So for example, together, the World Health Organization and UNICEF will be launching a call to action on global parenting support in November. We work very closely with some private sector companies that are really interested in children. So we work with Lego and Sesame Street, for example. These are very big partners, important partnerships for us. But this is really, in some ways, very early on in a mental health journey for us. And we're hoping to expand those partnerships. So we hope to work even more closely with a wider range of uh, private sector partners and to expand the networks of governments and academics coming together really around these very sharp, focused calls to action around parenting, investment in mental health, changing the conversation on mental health to really bring focus. Because the problem that's happened in previous decades is the whole agenda on mental health has been very fragmented. So we're trying to bring a range of partners together around that sharp focus. And often people say this is just impossible, but you know, people said exactly the same thing about vaccines 40 and 50 years ago. In 1982, only 20% of the world's children under five were vaccinated against the major five childhood diseases. Those diseases were preventable. And when the world put its mind to it, and it massively increased the policy priority of vaccines. Within a decade, it increased to 80%, dramatically reducing child mortality. What was a game changer there was to have a very sharp focus that every child would have vaccines and one or two other very simple health interventions. And that became a galvanizing force for transforming all aspects of child health. As a result of that investment, public health systems strengthened, rural services for children strengthened, but it was that very sharp focus. I think when we talk about things like mental health and adverse childhood experiences, which we have targets on for the Sustainable Development Goals, it's hard to see progress for those targets unless we have a sharp focus on three or four key calls to action, which you bring the full weight of the UN, private sector, partner governments and civil society behind to really drive the agenda forward. We also have a word like force multiplier. We use the word accelerator. So when we say accelerator, we mean the thing that will massively speed up the campaign, but also is likely to achieve the highest number of results and impacts for a very focused intervention. So for us, the four force multipliers are that governments need to invest. They dramatically underinvest. Mental health is 30% of the non-fatal disease burden, but represents less than 1% of many governments' overall health expenditure. In the continent of Africa, there is one mental health professional per 100,000 population. So there needs to be a massive increase in spending. Second force multiplier for us is parenting. If we can get very minimum package of support to help parents learn uh, some of the basics when needed and also you know, become more self-aware as parents, that can transform the situation of children, prevent abuse and neglect. Thirdly, schools where every child's connected, has a sense of belonging and can access help. And fourthly, a transformed conversation 
These are our four main force multipliers on mental health. I say to people, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, do you want to contribute to results? Do you want to transform something? And if you do, you really need to focus on that. It's so easy in our careers to get locked up in process, in bureaucracy. I advise people, if they can, to cut out the noise and to go directly for that thing that will be a force multiplier. I think the second thing is do what you love. When I work on recruitment, if the person's really passionate about the issue, you know they're going to perform. And thirdly, be flexible, you know, to have the ability to completely change career, to innovate and try new skill sets, because that's what keeps you young and fresh and engaged. In 2002, we had this huge campaign in Afghanistan to try and get millions of kids back into school. We say back, but it was mainly for the first time for most of them. You know, we brought in millions of tents and school books, and then often they had to be delivered to remote villages through donkeys and camel trains. It was an incredible, exhausting engagement. The first day of that new school year, to look out of your window and to see kids going to school for the first time in their life was amazing. So I'm going to then fast forward 15 years later when I get a call from somebody at Oxford. And they told me they were sitting next to somebody on their program and uh, they told me about their life journey and, and how, you know, how they'd learned in a tent and ended up in Oxford. That's the real reward of the job, you know, is knowing that this is really transforming lives. And I think that if things sometimes seem to go backwards, you know, in terms of children's rights, often it's a momentary thing. The thing that you've invested, I believe it stays and it remains. I hope that UNICEF's legacy, wherever it is, never ends. Because if you invest in children, that continues to come back in return, generation after generation. There's so much unacknowledged hurt in the world. We see it in children around the world through organizations like UNICEF and what Benjamin is working on. We see it in many American communities, but especially the Black community. These traumas that we have not been shown a way to acknowledge or talk about. But there are ways. And there are people like Benjamin and people like Charlemagne, the network of folks that they work with, who are helping us see that a loved child shows up to school ready to learn and to love, as Benjamin shared. That a healed person can show up with more grace for another person and be a part of their healing, the way Charlemagne said. Undoing that trope that is too true that hurt people hurt people so we've got so many places to start around the world and in our neighborhoods please find a resource for you near you and contribute to one for somebody else we do this better when we do it together thanks for tuning in thanks for listening to another great conversation how we can multiply our force Do you want to dig in more on today's guests and the work they're doing? 
or maybe you want to understand what action you can take in your community. Either way, go to salesforce.org slash force multiplier. That's one word, force multiplier. Force Multiplier is a production of iHeartRadio and Salesforce.org, hosted by me, Baratunde Thurston. It's executive produced by Elizabeth Stewart, produced by Yvonne Sheehan, and engineered, edited, and mixed by James Foster. Join us next time for more stories of how we can change the world one relationship at a time. Listen to Force Multiplier on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.